in this moment in time, when we're in a pandemic, we're in this racial awareness kind of time, maybe what we were discussing, all of us with good intentions were discussing before, maybe it's not enough. Welcome to episode 422 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Rye Marcatilio-McCracken with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today on the podcast, Christopher talks with Angela Seifer and Craig Settles. Angela is the founder and executive director of the National Digital Inclusion Alliance and a tireless digital inclusion and equity advocate who has worked to connect communities for over two decades. Craig is a nationally recognized consultant who works with public and private sector clients to build and improve networks. He hosts Gigabit Nation and is the director of Communities United for Broadband. Together, they untangle the long history of broadband subsidies and racial bias and how that has come to influence who has affordable connection options today. They also talk about the current stage of telehealth and the ramifications of the Digital Equity Act since its adoption a year ago. Now here's Christopher talking with Angela Seifer and Craig Settles. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and I'm here today with two favorites of the show, Angela Seifer, the Executive Director of the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. Welcome back, Angela. Thanks, Chris. And we also have Craig Settles, an industry analyst and consultant since 2006, which he likes to say because I started in 2007 and he was there before me. Uh, he's also host of the Gigabit Nation radio talk show and director of uh, Communities United for Broadband. Welcome back, Craig. Glad to be back. Excellent. So we're going to talk about, let's see what the actual title was. Um, it was along the lines of looking at racial bias in broadband policy, I think is the way I was thinking of it. And now um, this is something that the three of us have been talking about, um, both publicly and otherwise. But Craig, you were the one that suggested we should put it on a podcast. So what are we doing here? If I look at my start date in uh, the days of the mini Wi-Fi. Just rub it in. <laughs> the, the jackpot in the sense of they said we're going to build a citywide network right and the, the people went crazy it was a great thing a lot of other cities tried to implement it uh, implement it as well and even though philadelphia didn't do as well as we had hoped the root cause was significant which is um the mayor looked at the demographics of the city and you could basically figure out who had or had not any broadband by their their address, their their economic status, right? The um, the the more affluent parts of um, Philadelphia, or that maybe ninety five percent full adoption, right? When you look at say um, you know the the low income parts of town that would drop down to be 45 maybe 50 percent totally unserved to, to clarify what you're talking about is the people who are using the connections i think anyone who had the the interest and the money could have paid uh, comcast most likely at that time uh to sign up and so we are talking in this case i think primarily about adoption, although over, over the course of this discussion, we're going to talk about both. I would say that the adoption narrative is probably how we have this problem where um, the, 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 lo the low-income parts of town don't have broadband. But also, um, and I think this was an issue in Philadelphia as well at that time, was um, the 
incumbents were not spending money in low-income areas because they could not get the money back. And so, and this has been an ongoing issue. So it's been publicly thing, a thing of um, uh, adoption, affordability, right? But, but in reality, if you actually wanted to have broadband in a lot of these places, you would have had a pretty bad connection to begin with. Uh, they, were, they were just unkept up um, infrastructure, mm-hmm. right? Now we got to the broadband stimulus and because of that adoption narrative, the cities were left on their own and most of the money went to the rural areas, right? As we fo- fast forward to today, we still have the same need in terms of like the percentages of people who do not have access to the technology, to an infrastructure, and, and also affordability. I mean, they're, they're kind of go hand in hand. Um, but we are putting in millions, billions in various programs, uh, just looking at the FCC and the USDA, right? They're spending this year um, at least $5 billion. And the, um, the Lifeline program, which is only a subsidy program, and an inadequate one at that, right? This is un- under a billion. So we're basically talking mm-hmm. about a five to one ratio, spending ratio with our tax dollars. Yet we have three times as many urban folks who cannot get uh, connected as as rural. Right. Uh, and uh, Angela's uh, report solidifies the issue very well, you know, in terms of numbers and, you know, what is that the case, the root cause of our problems. Right. And I think I want to, I want to start a bit generally and I'm going to, I'm going to ask Angela to respond to some of that, but I, I want to note, first of all, there are some people who would bridle at calling the high cost programs tax dollars since it is collected from a fee on, on certain types of phone services. And I just wanted to throw that out there for the pedantic among me. Um, and um, the other piece is I feel like um, what you've been describing, Craig, and um, is that we've broken up the problem of people not being on the internet into different buckets. And I think what you're saying is that was a mistake. And I want to get Angela's sense of that because, I mean, candidly, I've done this for a lot of years. Um, I've thought it was useful to break it up into different buckets. But I do now see that that has made it very easy to spend all of the money on white communities. And so I want to throw all of that at you, Angela. <laughs> but let's start with, um, I think you wanted to correct something also about the uh, the lifeline, just so people had a sense of, of the meager amount we are spending on a broadband subsidy that reaches people of color. So I would actually say we don't have a broadband subsidy. Uh, I would say the books, legally, the FCC has widened Lifeline to include broadband, but are people actually getting a broadband subsidy? Very few people are. More folks have a mobile phone because they really need their phone. And then they have three gig of data. I think we can all agree three gig of data is not broadband. So it's the few folks that are using Lifeline for a wireline service, they have broadband through wireline. But it's so small, I don't even think we can say we have a broadband subsidy. 
Sure. So the problem is worse than than Craig described. But but first, can you just respond to the the question about whether it's a mistake to be um, breaking up the problem of families not on the internet into one of adoption versus access? So no, I don't think that's a problem. I, I think we have to divide it up in order so that we know what we're solving. So what is the barrier? Is the barrier that the infrastructure doesn't exist? Let's solve that barrier. Is the barrier that it's affordable? Let's solve that barrier. Is it the barrier that they don't know how to use it? Let's mm-hmm. solve that barrier. It could be somebody who has all the barriers. So it could be they're in a rural area and it gets built and they still can't afford it. So we, we need to make sure that we are addressing them. I think the difference now is that we used to only talk about the availability barrier. Now we're talking about adoption too. And it's common enough that I don't always have to, like if I'm talking to a reporter, I don't always have to say like, hey, you know, there's this other thing called adoption. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they come in knowing that that's an issue and it's the pandemic that's created that awareness. So what did NDIA find when you looked at how we've spent money on broadband subsidies? So we looked at where the subsidies were going rural areas, right? They're not going to urban areas, even though there's no adoption there, low adoption there. Uh, They're going to rural areas where there's no, um, where there are places where the infrastructure doesn't exist. And when we looked at where those places are, they tend to be white populations. Uh, We were looking mostly at um, who doesn't have service. So we were not looking at the issue of uh, where exactly has the money gone and what the racial makeup is of that areas. I highly encourage somebody to do that. We were looking at more where the need is in terms of rural, and that does tend to be more white. I definitely agree with Angela's approach, you know, to look at it in, in these buckets, right? Um, I think that for the purposes of having uh, you know, how we allocate the money that goes into the high cost programs, which are indeed coming from uh, the money that you put into your phone bill as opposed to your tax dollars. But then you look at um, what the uh, USDA spends, right? Their loan programs and grant programs and so forth, that is indeed tax dollars. Collectively, you know, we're talking about a people, you know, the United States, where everybody is paying into both of these sources of income, yet we're not getting well represented in the spending of that money. And so when you look at the urban area, right, yes, you can say that they have better uh, infrastructure, than the rural areas, which have may have none, and that is, uh, you know, that's a fair uh, statement. And I would still say that in a lot of the urban areas, you don't have um, good infrastructure. Now, it's probably it may be difficult to figure out where it is, right? Maybe look at the maps that we're using in general to determine where we have broadband. You know they're a joke, right? So it's hard to determine where, what, you know, what's real, but you still have to figure out that we have a problem and part of it is an infrastructure and part of it is adoption. Mm -hmm. But I think you got to figure out how do you still address the issue of the, the, uh, the infrastructure part? 
I think you're right. I, but I also want to move on a little bit. Um, and I'll say that I think you're right, because I know that from maps that um, Bill Callahan did um, with Angela and, and others of Cleveland, Detroit, we've seen that there is um, not equal infrastructure access. Um, and so um, I am a, one of the foremost proponent of building new and better infrastructure in cities. So um, because I think um, you and I agree on that, I'd like to focus on um, where the money um, has been been spent and and one of the things that you've really been focused on lately is telehealth and and one of the things you've done more lately is to look at how telehealth subsidies are spent and um, some of the current laws that are being debated and it once again it does seem like there is a real racial bias in the outcome of where money's going um, so what, tell us what you found you cannot separate the discussion of um, broadband and telehealth right because you know telehealth doesn't exist where there isn't broadband, right? If I look at, um, for example, in Cleveland, there, there's a clinic, uh, a medical practice, which actually involves seven offices within Cleveland, right? And they have, you know, received a, like this emergency grant from the FCC, great, right? But when they implemented the telehealth, there were definitely, there were problems where people could not get to them, the, the, that those practices, offices, right, because they didn't have good broadband. So the problem it has then for the, um, the, the telehealth folks and anybody who's actually receiving money is that if you're getting money for, uh, you know, beefing up your technology within the office, and giving the, the, those practices money to underwrite uh, devices, uh, computing devices, right? You have solved a problem, but you haven't aff- affected the, the fact that some percentage of their patients will not be able to access that telehealth service. And where I also think it's very um, dramatic in terms of you know the situation that we have is that we're the largest concentration of African Americans and people of color is in the area in the in the urban areas, right? They represent 75% of those people not connected, right? And they are also the same people who have uh, high diabetes, uh, strokes, and hypertension. You know, the the healthcare for our uh, minority populations in this country sucks. And Mm -hmm. so you cannot not have a discussion about broadband when you talk about telehealth because of the actual infrastructure, but you have to also look at the fact that where are we not having good health care? Let me see if I can if I can summarize. You're saying that the telehealth programs that we have are basically focused on getting money out to the practices, to the doctor's offices, so that they yes. can design their systems to work with people that have home broadband access, rather than trying to make sure the populations in which we might see the greatest medical savings, the the best, um, mo- the most hope for the most interventions that would be successful, um, are populations that uh, happen to be African American often and are the least connected. Yes, exactly. So I feel like, I mean, this is something I've, I've been thinking a lot about, and I, I feel like this is a tremendous 
failure. <laughs> in, I mean, like, the understatement. Um, isn't, isn't, it, isn't it the same problem, Chris? The, the idea that if we just provided the infrastructure, that's like that's the problem, solve the problem. If we just help the doctors to do their job, then that again is the infrastructure. They are the infrastructure. Um, so it's the same problem where we're not turning to go to address the actual community members who are using, and it's so it's both using the internet in general and using specifically the specific application telehealth. We have to actually look at the community members who are or are not using it. Yes, and I and I think that I mean I'm struggling to figure out. There's so many different ways to take this, but I, I feel like for people who are listening, they might be thinking, well, yeah, but this is broadband policy and that's telehealth policy and it's focused on health. And I feel like if there's one thing that people should be aware of in 2020 regarding this is that we live in a system in which we have to figure out how to deal with past injustices. And if we have programs that are just going to perpetuate the past injustices, then we have to rectify those programs. People who are making telehealth policy need to be aware in how they are perpetuating this this racism by developing a solution that is only applicable to people who often moved out of the cities um, and at a time in which African-Americans were not allowed to move out of the cities. Um, so... I, I just want to I want to make sure we come back to that because I think a lot of people listen to this show they may not pay as much attention to the racial policy issues that that the rest of us do because it's of an interest. Couldn't you make the same argument though about education? So prior to COVID, my youngest child, ten years old, would get um, suggestions from her teachers, assignments you might even say, to be using um, certain applications that they pay for that the school pays for online so that she can get ahead. Since, or, or she could do it at school. But if she does it at school, she's not getting ahead. Then she's falling behind because if something comes up and you don't do it right, so the teacher's like, okay, we'll do it at home. But then it, for kids who didn't have it, that wasn't really part of the equation. Well, you could come into the school and do it. Okay, thanks. That's not helpful <laughs> at all. So it's the same thing with with telehealth, right? It's that we're not we're looking at the structure. It's great that the school was paying for that, but we weren't looking at the kids themselves. And then the pandemic hit and now we're like, oh, kids don't have internet. Oh, seniors don't have internet, right? Like all of a sudden the pandemic hit and now there's awareness. Right. I think it's, it's, it is a painful discussion for some people to have. I think it is very easy for some people to not have the discussion because like when I talk to broadband people and say, oh, you need to talk about telehealth and you need to be involved in, to, in that process, their first response is I build a network and I'm done, right? And that's where we are with broadband. That's where we are with education. That's where we are with healthcare and telehealth. And but so- Craig, Craig, don't you also think that's a comfort level, right? It's uncomfortable to deal with equity issues. Oh, no doubt. Right. Well, I, it's I more mean, comfortable I- to just build it and walk away. But that's, that's, this is all true. I want to make sure that we're, we all have the same sort of folks in mind that we're talking about. I mean, to some extent, if, uh, if a person who runs a, an ISP tells me, look, I don't know anything about telehealth, I don't want to get involved with that, I respect that a lot more than if I hear it from an elected official. <laughs> elected official, <laughs> exactly. like, yes. hey, it's, it's too bad. You know, you ran to solve public problems. <laughs> this is a public problem. You don't get to just pick the ones that are easiest. Some do. But, <laughs> but I, I feel like it's worth noting. Like, I don't think 
and I will, I will go further to say, I think if we expect ISPs to solve telehealth problems, ultimately we're going to get bad telehealth solutions. <laughs> no, but I think we should look at, we should look at Chattanooga again, right? I mean, because mm-hmm. um, when they also applied for the same grant that the folks in Cleveland did, right? And so when uh, they were developing a strategy, how they were going to, re- how they were going to propose uh, for, for a grant, right? They put the uh, APB people who had done grants before. We got they got the um, a vendor who has been providing you know who is providing services in Tennessee and other places. And then we had uh, the Enterprise Center, right? And there was a case where the EPB folks built the network, and technically they were done, right? But because they worked with a mindset that we all work together to find the problem. And then we divvy out who's responsible for the implementation of the solution, right? That's how they went about the application that then became the application that went to the FCC. And all I'm saying is that everybody should be a part of the discussion and where it mm-hmm. makes sense, they should impact uh, the solution, but it's not the same thing as saying I built it and, and I'm not going to worry about it anymore. No, no, I, I think you're totally right. We're definitely seeing overall, not just in that in the telehealth realm, overall in the digital inclusion realm, that in places where there are more partners coming to the table, so to speak, there's more getting done. Exactly, exactly, and I'm a big proponent of that. It's just it's hard to get people. You know, I mean, they're, they're busy people. They got they got the thing in front of them, and that's like their job and their main objective. Right. But Craig, let me let me jump in for a second. I also think that there's just a uh, there's an issue of of how we define the problem. And I think I've I've been a proponent of a long time of defining the problem that I work on as let's make sure people can have a physical network available that's available at a reasonable price to them and ideally um, multiple networks, but ideally one that's community owned. Like I have multiple things I'm working on. And, and when you look at, for instance, Wilson, North Carolina, doing a great job, they have in their public housing, the $10 a month for anyone in public housing, and they see about two thirds adoption of it. And so depending on how I solve the problem, I'm done. But maybe I'm not. I mean, and that's where I feel like it's really important to think about how we're defining the problem. Because if we think of this as, okay, as long as we get the price down to $10 a month, there's nothing more we have to do. But I think Angela is part of a, you know, you've helped build this whole network of people that understand that that that's not the end of government's responsibility. That, in fact, um, if we were to leave it there, we would leave a lot of value on the table. We would miss a lot of opportunities. And it's foolish to end there. So, Angela, with that, let's, let's um, if you can guide us into this. The Digital Equity Act, I think it'd be useful to talk about how we fix how we've only spent in, in more rural, whiter areas. So the Digital Equity Act, uh, the contents of it are in the HEROES Act and, and other places right now. But the content is that we need state digital equity plans. So I, I maybe oppose if we'd had state digital equity plans uh, mm. that we had started to implement, maybe we wouldn't have been in the spot we were in when the pandemic hit. So uh, we weren't. So let's make sure that we do create state digital equity plans where we do make sure everybody has access to the internet and a device and the digital literacy training. And so that Digital Equity Act is money for the states to create the plans, money's for states to implement those plans. 
and then monies for um, other programs that are out there that aren't maybe weren't part of those state plans. Um, those would be more competitive uh, to make sure that there's a lot of innovation going on in the field. Uh, there hasn't really been money in the digital inclusion field. So innovation happens at the grass. You don't get more grassroots than when there's no money. <laughs> so we got to figure out how to support that because it's already the awesomeness is there at the local level. They need more resources to do the work that they've been doing. Not only like money kind of resources, but academics to, you know, be involved in the research. So we know which strategies work and which don't. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of information on which strategies work. Why not? Because nobody had money to pay for it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we, we, we need more of that also. The Digital Equity Act itself, it's a first step. It is a way for us to make sure that there is ongoing financial support and it can't be the only piece. There's lots of other pieces out there. The local folks are figuring out amazing pieces. States are now addressing it. Uh, so as we keep doing that, and it's gonna get kind of messy and I think that's okay. And it'll frustrate some folks because of the messiness. We have to get where there are more resources for that local work. And if we step back for a second, I'll ask you this first, Angela, but Craig, I'd love to have you jump in. Um, let me let me start off by saying that I don't think it's true that we should think our goal is to get 100% of people online. Some people always choose not to be online. That's fine. That's I think fine. We, always, we always want to make sure that, that particularly families that have children are able to to make sure that they have all the education opportunities. But so if we just assume that we're just looking at the world of everyone that in theory would want to be online. Uh, why should government care if the last 10% of people are not um, are figuring it out? Because it costs them money when people aren't online. I think this is the part that we really, really wish we could dig more into. Um, governments, businesses, healthcare systems, most certainly. How much money would any of them save if more of their clients, patients, constituencies were online and they were able to have their services be online and not have those offline versions to make sure that those folks were still served. Uh, health systems in particular, I would love to see somebody do a study as to what a healthcare system could save if they were able to have more of their clients using those telehealth systems, using their personal health record systems. That would be incredible. And Craig, what, uh, what do you think of when I ask that question? I think that um, one of the arguments about, you know, where we are with adoption and so forth is that people don't understand and they have no interest and so forth. I think we're asking the wrong question. I think the question is how many people are affected by their health? How many people are being affected by the lack of education, the lack of long, uh, lifelong education? Right. And I think that, you know, we've, we've tried to go at the problem of getting people interested in being on broadband. And people just said, no, I don't have no, any interest. I don't see any need and so forth. But if you said to someone, what if you were able to take care of you, this problem you have with diabetes, uh, this problem you have going to see a doctor? your desire to have you know, some sort of uh, facility where I can get retrained for, um, you know, a new type of uh, job or profession and so forth. And so we attack the issue as a technology 
we need to throw technology at it. And then and if you were a smart person, you'd understand that there's a value in having this thrown, uh, you know, throwing this technology at you, right? As opposed to saying, um, what's this thing that you do over here, this need that you have over there, right? And then you say, well, I can find a way, or if I can find a way to meet this need, right? Would it make sense? And the person would probably go, yes, great. It would save me a lot of time or I would be a healthier person, Mm -hmm. right? And then you say, well, we can solve this problem with um, broadband. Now we have this package of, you know, whatever relationship, uh, whatever comes from a, you know, a telehealth company and the hospital and, and so forth. But it's how we ask the question. You know, it was the same thing back in 2005 when Philadelphia was feeling the need to build a citywide network and people were like, oh my God, it was the end of the world. Right. <laughs> but if, if someone had said, we have a health problem. If by asking the right question from, from, from Philadelphia days up to now, we've been plagued by not asking the right kinds of questions. And mm-hmm. when I look at feasibility studies and I just go, oh, another feasibility study, right? That's why I advocate for a needs assessment, right? Because if I'm talking about what is it that you need, and then I can you know, show you a correlation between your need and this particular piece of technology that you're going to be a loyal advocate and a customer for that network as right. well parents and so forth. I think we're working in the same direction, right? I mean, all of us and, and all the people that we interact with, but I think we just need to look at some of the, um, you know, the needs that we're trying to solve, not how, how do we sell the need for broadband? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in many ways, Craig, what you're describing is uh, what good programs do in the communities when digital inclusion groups have the funds to work with people on a one-on-one basis to help them to solve this. Um, you know, I would combine what you both said to some extent also by noting one of the reasons I think we haven't seen schools using more curriculum online is because they know the kids don't have a connection at home. And so that is holding, that's holding back education. And I'm not saying that we can solve all education problems by throwing computers at it. But I think that there's a lot that we're losing by being in this in-between time when government, businesses, all kinds of folks have to have two ways of doing things. One is non-digital and the other is digital. Yeah, so we're doing a new partnership. We've developed a new partnership, and it's with an entity that had been providing um, job skills training to older adults. Uh, And when the pandemic hit, they couldn't figure out what to do because so many of their older adults that they were serving didn't have internet or the skills or the device. So anyone guess what they did? Paper. Yeah. Correspondence school is back. <laughs> so I wanted to note I wanted to note one other thing, which is that you know we're seeing a lot of electric co-ops building um, fiber in rural areas. We've talked about rural areas as being predominantly white, but it's worth remembering that many of them are not. 
Um, I think most of them are, but um, particularly there's areas of, of concentrated black folks in the South. And one of the things that we just were seeing in Mississippi is there are 13 electric co-ops moving forward and they almost all serve whiter audiences. Um, there is, and when I think about also, I mean, this, this is, has a racial impact, but I'll say that also when I've traveled in uh, rural New York, rural Maine, uh, there's tremendous amounts of, of white poverty of people who can't afford $50 a month for a rural broadband connection either. Um, and so I think that's sort of the next next hurdle is how do we not just get a good connection out to rural areas, but how do we make sure a business model can support making sure everyone can use it? And, uh, we, can't, you know, we can't build it and just assume people will come because those who can't afford it won't come. And we can't be okay with that. We can't just shrug our shoulders and be like, well, wish they had enough money to pay for that connection. I do have to say, though, uh, you know, sort of the reason why I uh, you know, advocated for this uh, session, though, that I don't want to get lost. When we have a situation where we are spending, um, in essence, five, ten times more to solve a need in, in a rural area and totally ignore the need in the urban area, Right, there is an injustice here. Right, I have no problem with understanding that um, rural areas have needs, and it is a pain to build a solution to their, you know, geographic area. Right, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily want to get into a, you know, us versus them. We shouldn't, Craig, and I and I, I appreciate that. I don't think you have, I've ever felt that you were a, a kind of a us versus them kind of person. Uh, we're running out of time for Angela. I just want to hear Angela react to this quickly. Um, and that's I, I feel like you know it, it, we we made a decision, um, Congress in um, under uh, the Republicans, and then signed by Trump to give AT and T billions of dollars back. This isn't a, a situation in which we can only afford to invest in rural or urban areas. Uh, it is full, we are losing money by not solving this problem for everyone and growing the economy. Um, and so, I, but I just want to give Angela a chance for a last word before you have to run off to yet another meeting. To Craig's point that we are investing more to deploy in the rural areas, I would actually say we're not investing anything in the urban areas. Yeah, anything's more than zero. So, right. Even the amounts that we put in that are in that Digital Equity Act, paltry compared to what is what is already being discussed. And, and, and even all the good intentions of, of some of the folks in D.C. right now, if you look at what they're saying for rural deployment and what they're saying for um, the broadband adoption, which is everywhere. That's not rural. That's urban and rural, the, the, the adoption. It's a, it's a pittance. And so that, I think in this moment in time, when we're in a pandemic, we're in this racial awareness kind of time, now is when we say, okay, let's go back and look at those numbers. Because maybe what, maybe what we were discussing, all of us with good intentions were discussing before, maybe it's not enough. Thank you so much, Angela. Really appreciate you jumping on. Thanks for having me. So, Craig, before I, I kick you off now that oh, Angela's gone, uh, let, me, buddy. <laughs> let me ask you, how should, how should we address this, uh, this, this disparity between nothing 
Um, and even if we get something, but it'll probably be far less than the need is in urban areas. Um, I mean, I don't, I'll, I'll, I'll say it because maybe not everyone's aware of it, but I think, um, you know, Congress is something that responds more often to white communities than black. Um, black communities are mostly invisible unless they're being used as examples of, of high crime and they, particularly in the past four years under this president. Um, so what, what do you think we should be doing about the disparity in, in spending and outcomes? We've got to make a decision that there is a that there is a disparity, right? Because I think right now a lot of people don't know, they don't realize that there is a disparity because they think that everything is fine in the urban area, right? If I look at um, uh, 2008, right, that was the last time when broadband was across the board, right? Everybody needs broadband. Right. And then in the broadband stimulus, like 2009, right, everything was all about the rural. Right. And so and it's been this way for, what, eight years or so. And it's become an accepted fact. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't I don't think it would be at all correct or um, realistic to say that that it's because members of Congress are only want to help no. white people. Um, you know, I, I think it's because cable lobbyists are very savvy and they and again, they're not racist um, necessarily. I'm sure that there might be a few that are, but you can't speak about any broad group like that without knowing them. Um, but the simple fact is that they have encouraged policies that have resulted in spending. Um, just It just so happens that those are patterns in which it's where white people live. And the areas of the cities where they're not necessarily meeting the need, where families can't afford their services or there might not be good enough services, um, the lobbyists have been very good about making sure government doesn't try to even solve that. And I need, and, and that needs to be a point where we come to the table and say, this cannot stand. This, this disparity, the extent of the disparity is so egregious that it needs to be addressed. Somehow we have to acknowledge that. But I also think we need to look at there may be many ways that we can address the disparity. So it doesn't necessarily have to fall on government. I mean, look at what Chattanooga just did. They basically uh, raised money from organizations and private sector folks and all of that. A lot of it's right? from government. Yep. Local government. Yep. Um, address uh, 28,000 kids. We need to acknowledge the disparity but then we got to say how do we solve the problem so that there is equity on both sides of the equation right because so if 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 urban has the greater need acknowledge the fact that the greater resources you know the 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 companies the financial institutions all of these things that represent resources or that can be turned translated into resources right they need to be considered part of the solution this, so it doesn't doesn't freak out the people who say oh my god we can't afford this and bada 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 you know well no let's look at the ways you know it's that whole thing of you know we're not asking the right questions because we we get so centered on the one solution right in this case money 
You know, we need more money from the government mm-hmm. that, that uh, addresses this uh, disparity issue. Well, no, we need money and resources to solve the problem. And as right. that. There's a saying that that poverty is expensive, um, and and I mean when you think about because I feel like people look at government policy and they think of oh this is healthcare and this is broadband and this is um, you know the the prison industrial system this is the um, you know education um, and yet you I think you find that if you spend a little bit in broadband compared to the others you get these remarkable savings. We've talked before about the Maryland study that uh, gave people like a, a device that probably cost $500 and a data plan that probably cost five or 600, let's call it a thousand. They invested maybe $1,500 into um, a hundred people. Um, so let's call that, um, you know, um, $150,000 if I'm doing that right. Um, and um, yeah, that's right. Sorry, you can edit out my confusion. I won't ask you to check me, Craig, because you already said the numbers are challenging. <laughs> Bless you. Bless you. Um, but so, um, and then and on that, they saved $2 million over two years. Um, and I'm not saying that that means that we can give everyone a tablet, but I am saying that there are probably millions of folks out there for whom if we spent $1,500 you know, over the course of a year, we would save significantly more than that expenditure. And that doesn't even look at the other benefits from education, from giving people opportunities in life and and not funneling them toward a prison right. system. Um, so, uh, you know, people just, uh, this is where you need the whole cost accounting to really have a sense of what does it cost to continue operating the way we have been versus looking at how we can use the tools that we have today to really fix the problems that we've just been um, ignoring Right. for all these years. I mean, and not obviously, I mean, I would say you live in Oakland. Um, I live in um, St. Paul, Minnesota. For many of, of, of us, for me especially, I know it's easy to ignore these problems. Um, but I, I shouldn't say it in a way that it's not like everyone can ignore it. If you're, you know, if you're living in a low-income community, then um, especially if you're a person of color, then you, you can't just ignore it. But, but this is something we can fix. We can start getting on the right line. I think broadband's a good right. place to do and it. And I would say that, you know, when I talk to cities, you know, when I'm in the middle of doing a needs assessment, so, so the questions are, you know, what is it that you need? And then if I solve this problem, what are the benefits, financial, social, whatever, that comes with solving that problem? Because generally, the second question is where you, find, so where you start to find the money. Because then people right. will say, well, okay, I, yeah, I may have to spend $1,500, right? But I get, um, you know, benefits that uh, maybe $20,000, $40,000 over time, right? And so by asking that question, again, it's all about the question, right? If I ask the question of, how, you know, what is the need, the need, you know, what is your need, and then followed by, and then what are the benefits of meeting your need? Because I think that, again, that comes back to the whole thing of everyone just goes, they, they see the price tag, right? And they don't do the, what's my need? What are the benefits of meeting my need? Without that part of the discussion, we're going to still get screwed up. That's right. Well, Craig, thank you for for suggesting this topic. I think this is cool. really important. Um, I I certainly hope that people will let us know what they're thinking about it. Um, you know, I think 
Um, it's important to note that that the way that we've some of us have framed this isn't necessarily wrong to be focused on the infrastructure. I don't think I'm I'm sitting here and being like, if you believe that government should only do infrastructure, you're wrong. Um, what I'm trying to say is, is that you can be in a situation in which there are different ways of looking at things and all of them are right, but they lead you to different implications and you need to be aware of those. Right, because I think one of the things that came out of the Philadelphia book, right, on the whole Philadelphia wireless thing was this research guy who uh, did all these different focus groups, right? And he goes... Um, there is a problem orientation, you know, to dealing with a pro- with dealing with the uh, project, whatever. And then there is the creation orientation, right? And the problem solving is basically, I got this problem. Somebody please fix this problem because I'm going to die if I don't get this problem fixed. And then once it gets fi- fixed, then we're done. We don't think about it anymore. And we move on <laughs> to the next thing, right? He goes, but when you say we're going to create something, then all of a sudden people kind of go, well, I can create this bigger thing than I'd even imagine. Holy mackerel. Right. And then people get excited about it. They tell, they tell their friends, you know, all of a sudden money becomes available. You know, people find alternative ways to make a project happen, you know, where they, uh, and I think uh, Deb in uh, Chattanooga was saying, you know, there were, people that that provided something else you know almost like an in-kind thing but but the whole thing Mm -hmm. is when you have the creation vibe the creation orientation that is what will open up all of these different possibilities right as opposed to i'm going to fix this one problem because i got all these people yelling and screaming about it and when it's done i have a good night's sleep and so that's where we need to be looking at all of the stuff when we're talking about um, broadband and digital, whatever. Well, I think that's going to be the last word. I agree with you. I think it's um, this is where we see enlightened leadership, and we hopefully will be able to learn from cities like Chattanooga that are pushing so far ahead. Yeah. Thank you, Craig. Hey, no problem, bud. Thank you. That was Christopher talking with Angela Seifer and Craig Settles. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This is episode 422 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.